we had a representative from Boyne and Powder and Vail and Altera, but we also had the NSAA board of directors. We also had National Ski Patrol on board, PSIA, SIA, US Ski and Snowboard, and we decided to just do this all together. Luckily, everybody was really finding common ground and we announced it and I was really nervous that there was going to be pushback because when you think about it, you know, there's some skiers out there who are really independent and, you know, don't tell me to wear a mask because their states were actually not even mandating masks yet, but everybody got behind it. And uh, when I say collaboration, it was just a perfect example of everybody coming together for a common cause. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Got a good one for you today with the head of the National Ski Areas Association. Before we get to that, I want to remind you, as always, to please subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. This podcast is just a small part of the storm. The core of this whole thing is the Storm Skiing newsletter. Ski season may be winding down, but guess what? The storm never stops. There's plenty to talk about in the off season, and I'm going to keep this thing going all spring and summer long. Also, you should follow me on Twitter at Storm Ski Journal for season pass updates, resort closing info, and a whole lot more. Before we get to the conversation, a quick word about my partners, Mountain Gazette and Helly Hansen. The Storm Skiing Podcast is brought to you in part by Mountain Gazette. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a biannual, large format print title celebrating mountain culture. The crew is wrapping up work on issue 195 and it is loaded. We've got a spring skiing gallery by legendary Alta-based photographer Lee Cohen, Amanda Monti's stunning essay on the folks fighting fires in the West, a Q&A with New Hampshire governor and Waterville Valley owner Chris Sununu, a journey back to Pakistan by John Buzdar, a profile of mountaineer Arlene Bloom written by Ingrid Backstrom, and the return of the jaded local who comes over from Powder Magazine. And that's just the start. This thing will be loaded with photos and stories from mountain towns around the country. Look, we told you last time that issue 194 would sell out, and it did. Demand for the magazine is high. We expect this next issue to sell out as well. Don't miss out. Head over to mountaingazette.com and enter code Go higher 10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions. Use code East Coast, all one word, for 10% off everything else, including vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. And speaking of covers, you've got to check out the cover for 195. It is absolutely stunning. Mountain Gazette, when in doubt, go higher. This episode of the Storm Skiing Podcast is also brought to you in part by Helly Hansen the brand that has been making professional grade gear for more than 140 years. And listen, if you're getting excited about spring touring and summer hiking, then you need to check out their new groundbreaking Odin 9 World's Infinity Shell Jacket. This is the newest iteration of their award-winning jacket, and it features their Leafa Infinity Pro technology, which doesn't use any added chemical treatments. That means you never have to reproof your jacket. It's easier to care for, and there's much less environmental impact. The best news is that this environmentally friendly upgrade did not come at the sacrifice of performance. Ellie Hansen has worked with search and rescue organizations around the world to make sure it has the performance these teams demand. So 
If you want to get your hands on a men's or women's Odin 9 World's Infinity Shell Jacket or anything else from the brand's new spring and summer collection, visit the Helly Hansen store in Boston or Burlington and mention this podcast to get 18.77% off. Why 18.77%? Because Helly Hansen was founded in 1877. That's right, more than 140 years ago. Episode 43, National Ski Areas Association President and CEO, Kelly Pollack. How's your ski season? I know, I know. For a lot of you, it's far from over. But we're through the heart of it, and there was nothing inevitable about that. Look around the world. Skiing barely happened in Europe. Canada had waves of shutdowns. Southern Hemisphere skiing in 2020 was a mess. But the 2020 to 21 ski season happened in the United States, and it happened without shutdowns, and it happened in large part due to the efforts and leadership of the National Ski Areas Association, the NSAA. They're the ones who herded all the cats. They set common operating standards, and they figured out a way to make skiing happen in the midst of a global pandemic. So we all owe them a huge thank you. This isn't just me saying this. Ski area operators have been very happy with the NSAA's efforts, as anyone who listens to this podcast regularly already knows. At the head of that organization is Kelly Pollack. Now, Kelly came on the podcast last April when this thing was just getting started, and none of us was at all certain we would even have a 2020 to 21 ski season. Now that we got through it, in large part thanks to the efforts of Kelly and her team, I thought now was a great time to reflect on their incredible work. Let's do it. My guest today has been the president and CEO of the National Ski Areas Association since 2017. The NSAA is the trade association for U.S. ski area owners and operators. The NSAA represents more than 300 alpine resorts that account for more than 90% of skier and snowboarder visits nationwide. The NSAA also represents 400 suppliers of equipment, goods, and services to the mountain resort industry. Prior to taking the top job at the NSAA, she was general manager of Mount Snow, Vermont, from 2005 until 2017. Kelly Pollack is my guest. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us again. Thanks for having me back. So we last spoke almost exactly a year ago when the dust was still settling from the total shutdown of the U.S. ski industry. What has your life been like for the last year, Kelly? (laughs) Well, thank you for asking. Um, Personally, all is good. Luckily, my family and my friends are all healthy. um, And that's true for the NSAA team also. Um, At NSAA, we're finding the balance between remote and in-office work. Um, Our experiences echo, you know, what we hear others are saying, the upside of things like, you know, if you find a little more time for exercise, and uh, getting healthy after that first initial uh, two months of eating and drinking. Um, but um, I would say on the on the downside um, would be the inability of disconnecting. You know, I think um, we find ourselves working all hours. So um, overall, though, um, we're we feel fortunate. Have you had a chance to ski? <laughs> yes, I have. Um, I have not skied. I've probably only skied like 12 times this year. Um, and normally since I've been at NSAA, it's been about 30 days a year. So, um, that's kind of been a bummer. Um, but Hey, it, it is what it is. Have you been mostly right there in Colorado? Um, Colorado. And I, um, 
so my husband um, is living out east, so I um, got up to Maine and Vermont also. Okay, great. So uh, get to talk to some of your friends at Mount Snow, maybe? Um, yeah, we, when when I go there, I'm pretty much incognito, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I get to talk to them um, you know, offline. We text a little bit, um, but I was able to connect just on Friday. I went to Copper, so I was able to oh, nice. connect and meet Dustin Lyman for the first time. So that was really oh, cool. Yeah, he gave us a nice tour. Great. So I'd imagine that, that, you know, a dozen days is maybe not what you wanted, but it's enough to give you a sense of how the industry is dealing with COVID and how they've managed through it. And obviously you've been a driving force in that response. Um, but just zooming out a little and, and, and looking at COVID, it kind of came out of nowhere. And the ski industry is facing a couple of existential long-term challenges, climate change, um, you know, the lack of diversity, which we'll talk about a little bit more later on. Uh, but now that you've had some time to put this whole thing in context, Kelly, I'm curious how you rank last March's shutdown and the need to adapt operations to the COVID era among these other challenges that skiing has faced. Do you think this is the biggest thing skiing's ever had to deal with or or, or are there other commensurate challenges there, or have there been historically? Yeah, I mean, climate change obviously is that one that is is just out there and um, we, we need to do better. Um, that would probably be the, the the largest threat, but no, not one single event that impacted every single ski area in the country, actually in the world um, at the same time, not that I can remember. Um, having said that, you know, there are ski areas that have had huge challenges that took years, um, decades to resolve. But I would say this 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 one earns the, <laughs> the unfortunate first place title for all time um, industry-wide challenges and um, hopefully, um, what we've learned from this will help us with, with some of the big, big ones like, um, climate action and diversity and, um, and, um, inclusion. If this is the biggest challenge, immediate kind of out of nowhere challenge that skiing has ever faced. And just looking at the way that the industry's responded and we're, we're basically at the end of the season. And I realize we're seeing some shutdowns in Canada, but we really have it in the U S and I've been really impressed as a skier, as an observer, as a participant, that the way the industry managed it and, and managed to get through it. Does this give you optimism that if we can handle this, if we can make it through this, we can face anything. We can face climate change. We can figure out the diversity puzzle. We can make this happen because we dealt with this out of nowhere and we have time to prepare for these other things and respond to them. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're, you're spot on. I mean, I, I, I always had immense um, optimism for, for things like sustainability and, and growing the sport. Um, what this taught me and or we'll talk about it a little bit later um, because I know you want to talk about ski well, be well, is that um, the industry is ready to collaborate. Just thinking back on this, the, the challenge was so enormous, right? So, so I looked back, we spoke in April 2nd last year, and it, you know we were still trying to figure out what way it was up. And it's, it's hard to even comprehend everything that had to be done. And you go back at this time last year, and, and a lot of us were questioning whether we would even have a ski season, a 2020 to 21 ski season. Um, so going back to that time, just transporting yourself back there after the shutdown happened, how did you approach this just as a leader of this organization? How did you even figure out where to begin, develop a strategy and execute it? 
Well, you have to understand first that, um, you know, I've only been here since 2017 and the team that I work with, um, we're a mix of seasoned veterans. Some of us have worked at ski areas with an operations background. Some of us have um, a lot of experience working with, with government and federal, um, with Congress. Um, and, and we also have this, this group of new team members um, with a lot of fresh perspectives. So um, we were already preparing for um, this before it actually happened, um, especially in the area of events. We had a big event coming up in advocacy for government relief funding. Uh, we weren't exactly sure what we were prepping for, but it was becoming clearer by the day that there would be some impact to our industry. So from, um, you know, everything from government relief to U.S. Forest Service fee deferrals, the wheels had started to turn. Um, so I'm fortunate that, you know, that I work with 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 folks that knew what to do and, and they just got started. Um, me personally, in terms of leadership, you know, I just I just thought back to my days at the ski area. And um, I think that being a good leader is staying out of your um your, your team's way and, and, um, guiding and directing and reminding them, um, what our areas of focus were. And for us, we had four areas of focus. Number one was to assist our members. And in the beginning, we, we, we had this, like, be the bright spot in their day because some were calling on the phone and just like, what, what do we do? Mm -hmm, right. <laughs> um, the second was to lobby for government relief. The third was education. That That is one of the things that we, we think that we do well. And we weren't going to drop our guard when it came to education. Um, and throughout the pandemic, we, we actually helped produce and put on 70 webinars. And then the fourth one, you know, you have to remember that every ski area, even trade organizations like NSA, we had other stuff going on that had to be finished. And for us, we, we were launching a new database and website. And so we had to get that done because we knew that um, so many more people were going to be going to our website for resources. So at the same time that all this was going on, we had to get that done. So those were our four areas of focus. And um, whenever we used to, whenever we'd go, you know, chasing that, that rabbit down that hole, which was happening on a daily and hourly basis, you know, sometimes I would have to <laughs> rein everybody in. <laughs> Right. So, so it sounds like there's two big things you had to do. You, you had to first, you had to help everyone stabilize. And, and that goes back to, you know, figuring out this matrix of federal assistance, you know, helping them deal with the Forest Service and, and those fees. And, um, and then the second thing was, how do we move ahead? What do we do? And what you came up with was these Ski Well, Be Well guidelines. So tell us about these. What is Ski Well, Be Well? Right. Um, basically, it's two documents and a signage plan um, of ski area be best practices um, that help skiers minimize the spread of, of virus. Um, and we had two versions. So the first one was what we called the government version. And um, it was created to help government and regulatory officials understand why ski areas should remain open and, and how we would achieve that. Um, so it was an education piece. It was an advocacy piece. The second version um, that um, skiers and riders may be more familiar with is the one that had Michaela Schifrin wearing a mask and asking uh, the skiing public to join her. Now, that version was created as a contract kind of uh, between ski areas and the guests kind of 
Um, we'll do this for you if you do this for us. Uh, we'll keep our resorts clean. We'll perform daily wellness checks on all of our staffs if you wear a mask and physical distance. So this version also helped guests to understand like why skiing is an excellent low risk um, outdoor sport that can you know, get you out of the house, improve your health. So uh, those were our two versions. And at the same time, we had this small committee that was working on a, um, on a signage plan with uh, Brad Williams. He's one of our supplier members um, from World Cup Supply. And um, they put together this set of signs that skiers could use to convey all of the new and very important messaging. Everything from wear your face covering to physical distancing reminders, uh, be wise, sanitize. So as you skied around, and I know you, you skied around a lot more than I did, hopefully you saw these signs. I saw them just in the past two weeks when I was skiing. Um, but many skiers adopted these signs. They were, you could, you could download the files for free and, and make them, or you could buy them from Brad, but it gave our industry a universal look and feel. Um, and that always makes it easier for the guests to understand the rules when they're not changing every five minutes. Yeah, it occurred to me partway through the season that, that, yes, these signs were very uniform. I think I've probably been to about 35 ski areas this year, and I've seen some version of those signs uh, at all of them. So the, you know, arrive together, ride together, um, the, the, the face mask uh, one, the, the visual one. So there, there's all these signs that I'm seeing all over the place. And at, at this point, when we're looking back, this is a very logical uh, extension of, of what you do. And it was a very logical thing to put together, but take us through the process of putting these guidelines together. Who was involved and how did you work together to make this common set of guidelines happen? It really started, I believe it was in February. Um, there was a meeting, it was a sustainability meeting that was happening. Um, and they were using our office cause we have a conference room and, and Steve, Stephen Kersher from, um, Boyne was here and uh, we were just chatting in the morning and he's like, this is on your radar, right? This pandemic, it's like, <laughs> this is, this is serious. And um, we were all talking and we're like, you know, Stephen is a smart guy and we're going to ramp it up. Um, so then, uh, you know, all the skiers started shutting down and um, Stephen kept in, in touch and Stephen is also an NSAA board member. Um, he kept in touch and he, he would send me articles to read all the time. It was just so wow. great. Um, you know, and, and this was what everybody was doing, right? We were all just connecting through articles, uh, through, through different things that we could read to, to learn as much as we could. And, um, it was probably around the end of May, beginning of June, um, that Stephen was really hot on masks. You know, he really wanted to talk about face coverings and, um, one call led to, hey, let's get let's get Boyne and Powder um, on the line. And um, it was on one of those calls that Wade Martin from um, Powder shared a document that the American Hotel and Lodging Association um, created. I, it was called something like Safe Stay. And literally, we took that and we said, let's go. Um, and if you look at that document and you look at ours, you'd be like, oh yeah, there's a lot of similarities. <laughs> I mean, I am not afraid to take great ideas and twist them and turn them, you know, to, to, uh, to, to pull off something that we desperately needed. So, um, we quickly created a timeline 
and um, that timeline was, so imagine it's June 1st, we wanted to complete by August 15th and we wanted to distribute by September 1st. So um, we had to come up with what we were calling the advisory board because we knew that if we wanted all the ski areas to get behind this, we had to have a really strong advisory board. So we um, had a representative from Boyne and Powder and Vale and Altera, um, yeah, but we also had the NSAA board of directors. We had um, all of the state association heads. And I will back up and say that we had been meeting with the state association heads. Every, every state has a ski area state association. Um, we had been meeting with them weekly. So they were critical in, in launching this. Um, we also had um, National Ski Patrol on board, PSIA, SIA, U.S. Ski and Snowboard, obviously the Michaela um, tie. So we had this large group and we decided to just do this, you know, um, all together. So we literally would come up with a version and we would send it to everybody. <laughs> and it was a little crazy because we'd be asking, you know, 40 people for their input. And um, then at night, um, Adrian Isaac is our uh marketing and communications director and she led all of the design with our designer um so she, we would get on the phone at night and we would just go through all of the comments and incorporate them into the next version get them to the designer try to turn them around in 24 hours and then send out the next one and this just went on for weeks um but luckily everybody was really finding common ground um and we were able to um, hit those deadlines and um, host a, a webinar um, with our members. And we announced it. And I was really nervous that there was going to be pushback because when you think about it, you know, there's some skiers out there who are really independent. And, you know, mm -hmm. don't tell me to wear a mask because their states were actually not even mandating masks yet. Um, but everybody got behind it. And uh, when I say collaboration, uh, it was just a perfect example of everybody coming together for um, for a common cause. So you have all these different entities, as, as you mentioned, and they, you know, they have a lot of resources, right? Like Vale and Altera and, and Powder and Boyne. Um, how much were your smaller members, your, your you know, family owned places with, you know, a thousand vertical feet and, and 40,000 skier visits, how much were they coming to you and saying, look, we need help because we don't have the resources to figure this puzzle out on our own? Yeah. And, and that's where the state associations um, really are, are key because they're talking to all of those folks. Some of those skiers may not be a member of NSAA. We, we have about 320 ski area members, but they're most likely a member of like the New York State Association or Ski Utah or Ski Vermont. So it was really um, critical that when we had a discussion, the state association would then get on a call or email or however they were communicating with their ski areas and feeding us back with the information. So no matter how big or small you are, we were hearing all of those comments. And in, in fact, some of the some of the skiers I was most worried about were some of those small skiers that I had heard, you know, this or that. Um, but 
we knew it was our best chance to get open and stay open. Um, what we were hearing was that depending on where the skier is located, you know, there were regulatory officials making a lot of decisions and that could be the governor's office, maybe in the state of Maine, or it could be a state and public health officer from a county in another region like Colorado. And, and we knew that indoor spaces were getting a lot of attention and recommend, recommendations, but there was no way that the people making the decisions would have the time or expertise to understand like the nuances of a chairlift. Mm -hmm. So that's when we decided that we really should do the work for them. Like we would present them with the facts, recommend solutions and advocate for approval on our best suggested practices. Um, so basically, you know, we wanted to help the states. Um, so instead of sitting back and just like, seeing what cards were dealt to us we wanted to help them take action and help the regulation the regulators understand the complexity of our operations you had that additional layer of complexity i because when i interviewed schweitzer mountain ceo tom chassis on the podcast a couple of months ago he said that idaho didn't issue any regulations at all for ski area operating guidance whereas in new york and vermont we had incredibly detailed protocols so as you're as you're working with all these skiers and all these regulators and all, and all these folks, how complicated was it to, to create these common guidelines? It would work for everyone everywhere across the country, whether it's Vermont where they have, you know, an eight page document or whatever it was, as opposed to Idaho where they have nothing. Right. Right. And, and I actually listened to that podcast. That was fascinating. I mean, what a perfect example of the contrast of what was going on from state to state. And, you know, the, that, that Tom would go to a box store and, less than half the people were wearing face masks, but, but he kept it going at his ski area and insisted that people wear face masks. But coming up with, with the best practices, that was a tricky part. Um, we spent a lot of time de debating um, on a few of the items like loading chairlifts. Um, this is the part I think everyone pr probably lost a little sleep over. Uh, I believe Ski Well Be Well was successful because it combines um, us taking the lead and being firm in what we wanted, but also offering flexibility. We knew that we had to come out with some big ticket items like um, face coverings required, period, no, no debate. Uh, daily staff wellness checks. Uh, those were the things that we were going to um, commit to. But when it came to loading lifts and just the the vast difference of, of lifts from ski area to ski area, we left a little room for flexibility. So some ski areas were telling us that they would only load chairs with people in the same pod or, you know, people that they, tr they traveled with. Um, they would not load singles into chairs with strangers, but other ski areas wanted to pair up strangers if, if those, if they were fine with that. So the language became, high capacity chairlifts and closed cabin carriers may be loaded in a way that allows for physical distancing. <laughs> you know, that <laughs> sentence was probably about 10 days wow. in construct, <laughs> but, um, but we got there and, and for the most part, it worked. So you did it. I mean, we're, we're pretty much through the season. A couple skiers will keep going into May or even June or July in California. Maybe we'll, we'll see what, ha what happens this year and how it goes. Uh, but looking back, what worked about Ski Well Be Well and what didn't? I, I, obviously, what went well is that everybody got on board. 
there there seriously was no whining or complaining. Everybody just got on board. And given the political climate and everything that was going on, um, I just assumed that there would be some pushback. But no, it, it, it was it was it was really amazing. And why do you think that is, Kelly? Do you think at the end of the day, most of these operators were able to set personal politics aside and say, look, this is my business. I need to run it. And if this is what I have to do, then fine, let's just get the lift spinning. Yeah, I think a lot of it was that as time progressed, people were starting to put put it together and, and understand the pandemic more. There was there was more coming out in terms of the science um, of the virus. And I don't think it hurt that we had a really strong advisory board uh, there. If you looked down the list of all the people that were involved in putting the document together, there was somebody that you knew locally that you could pick up the phone and say, hey, you know, Sue, tell me about this part about face coverings. And, and Sue would be able to explain why we did that. So as the season went on, did you think you missed anything? Were there times when you had to, to go back and rethink parts of this? Um, yeah, I, I, I do wonder if we could have done more for states like Vermont and New Mexico. Um, we were talking with the state association heads, Molly from, from Vermont, um, and they had all of their ski areas uh, really involved with advocating, and they were advocating hard. But you always wonder, like, is there something we could have done? Um, I, I guess that would be a, re- a regret. So did you ever doubt, Kelly, that there would be a 2020 to 21 ski season? Or was your assumption, was your operating assumption from the day of the shutdown, hey, we're going to make this happen. We're going to do whatever we can to make it happen, whatever we have to do. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely wasn't sure if it was going to happen. Um, but but we absolutely, you know, you want to be there <laughs> when, when a ski area is suffering, um, whether it be, you know, something like a fire or um, a loss, a fatality, you just you just feel for them and you want to help. And, and I think that's what I heard around the offices is what can we do to help? So let's just do everything we can and um, and uh, try to help them get open and stay open. You know, for me personally, as I watched the Southern Hemisphere over the summer, I, I, I did not feel good about the 2020 to 21 ski season in the United States, because it never really got going in South America. They, they had shutdowns and startups in New Zealand and Australia. It just, it wasn't going well. And, and I think I probably wasn't fully appreciating maybe some of the cultural differences at the time, but you know, meanwhile, you're working with all these people every day at what season, at what point Kelly, did you start to believe that COVID era skiing could work in the United States uh, and that we would have a full season? Uh, I guess it was around the end of January or or the beginning of February that I really felt like, okay, <laughs> we have a chance. We got we got through that holiday um, spike that you know the the media was warning about. Um, that's when I started to to really think we're going to do this. So now we're in April and we had you know a two week shutdown in New Mexico in November. It wasn't necessarily clear that any ski areas would have been open then. Anyway, that's always sort of a dicey like bonus period if you happen to get some snow or or good temperatures. So uh, you know I don't I don't know I wouldn't really necessarily count that as a as a shutdown. But other than that, we haven't seen any government shutdowns in the United States. We did see some long ones in Ontario. Now we're seeing some in uh, British Columbia and Ontario again. 
Uh, but again, cultural differences. Uh, but now that we're, it looks like we're going to make it and we haven't had any shutdowns in the United States. Does that surprise you? Yeah, it, it, because I believe that um, we all have like psychologically prepared ourselves for the next surprise. It, it, it's just been a year of surprises. On the flip side, though, I'm not surprised because I had to keep reminding myself, you know, I, I really do believe in the science. We all got behind Ski Well, be, well because based on the information being shared by the scientists, um, the epidemiologists that we we're talking to, skiing and riding is low risk as long as you keep your face covered, physical distance, practice good hygiene, you know, limit your time indoors and stay home if you have symptoms. So we knew that the ski areas were enforcing all of this. So it made sense that the shutdowns could be um, averted. Yeah, from my point of view, it, it seemed like there was, there's been a really a political pivot away from the idea of the shutdown. And we've tried to figure out ways to live with COVID instead and, and be safe as much as we can. Um, and we certainly had no shortage of COVID cases, particularly in the early months of the season where we're seeing that big surge. Uh, but why do you think we've managed to avoid shutdowns? Do you think there's a, a, a political element to it here or, or do you attribute it to responsible operation by the ski areas or is it something else? Well, I think um, number one, ski area operators, they've been ex extremely focused on the best practices to say, stay safe. As I was just saying, you know, then they haven't let their guard down. Um, the frontline staff were trained well. They've been absolute heroes um, for enforcing the rules every day, all season long. I, and I know that has been frustrating and exhausting, but that diligence and the fact that the risk of virus spread is low, is low um, it, it, it speaks to, um, to the best practices. I think that the ski areas and the state associations formed really strong relationships with the regulators. And whenever you do that, it goes a long way because, you know, a trust is built and they trust that you're doing the best and that when they call you, you're telling them the truth. Why did that situation happen? We're going to fix it. Um, but yeah, is some of it political? Probably. Absolutely. And, you know, as you zoom out and look around the globe, Europe, many, many European countries didn't have any ski season at all. Uh, Canada, as I mentioned earlier, had several waves of, of shutdowns. Um, just looking at that cultural difference, what do you, and I'm, I'm sure you're talking to your peers in these other countries, what, what do you think accounts for the fact that the U.S. went ahead and these other nations said, no, we're going we're gonna to shut this down? Yeah, well, I have I have talked to um, several ski area, ski area operators about this specific question, um, and they point to all of the skiers coming together and supporting one common plan. Uh, they believe that that had a lot to do with it. Um, but as we just you know talked about other factors, including politics, um, you know, an election year, um, you know, we didn't have the Ishkel uh, black eye to contend with. Uh, although it did make many of our regulators nervous, especially early on, um, I think those are some of the some of the reasons. Yeah, I hosted Dave Bird, your head of government affairs, on the podcast in the, over the summer, uh, mostly to talk about the visa issue. But but I, I I know a lot of what you do is is just lobbying and talking to the government. So I'm curious, does the NSA have a position on shutdowns? As you would talk to regulators, members of Congress, local governments over the course of the past year. Have you said, look, this is not the way to go, that there's ways to do this safely. 
Is this something you've taken a stand on? Yes, um, absolutely. Um, we we always point to the facts outlined in Ski Well, Be Well. You know, we we are an outdoor industry. Um, so what we try to do is really share information about the fact that we as an industry, our guests, they've always been masks. They, they, they wear face masks. Uh, distancing is created by our skis and boards um, between the next person in line, let's say in a ski lift line. Um, so we, we really tried to talk about chairlifts because a lot of people just don't understand that the average space in between each carrier is 50 feet apart and they travel an average of five miles per hour, which creates airflow, um, skiing's naturally distance. Um, so when we are, we, we try to be clear, um, in promising that we'll follow our, your indoor guidance. And that was something that everybody got on board. You know, we're going to follow your indoor guidance, 50%, nobody inside, whatever it is. But please, when it comes to outdoor recreation, um, please ask the ski areas, look to us and listen um, to our advice. So that's how we went about shutdowns and why they, they just shouldn't happen at ski areas. And, and how did you, as you were talking to the different legislative bodies across the, across the country, did you get any pushback on that? Were, were there some, uh, some lawmakers that were like, look, you know, I, don't, I just don't see it. Was it a tougher sell in some places than others? Um, yeah, I, I think, I think that, um, definitely as we saw in, in Vermont and New Mexico and in both of those, um, states, I wasn't involved with, with talking to the regulators. That was, um, Molly Mahara, who's the head of Vermont and, um, George who's the head of New Mexico. They were the ones doing all of the negotiations and, and just working hard, um, in concert with all of the ski areas from those states to keep those um, ski areas open. But at the end of the day, you know, um, you have to be respectful of what your government or what the local officials are saying. And um, they had to work with the the guidelines that were given to them. Um, it, it just, this was so much bigger than the ski industry, uh, as you know. And um, so we had some wins and we had some, some um, some areas that um, we just had to compromise. So it, it's not over yet, as we said, and, and we have, you know, a month or two or, or maybe a little more left. But as we push towards summer and you look back and assess the season, how do you feel about the 2020 to 21 ski season and the way that your members manage it across the country? Um, absolute pride. Um, I'm so proud that our industry chose collaboration over competition and used the time we had to build uh, a comprehensive plan that I think they did a really good job communicating it. They, they trained all their staff, they stuck to it. Um, I had a little consumer feedback throughout the year. Um, one person told me that they were yelled at for not wearing a mask. And normally, like when I hear that from a guest, um, you know, that just, you know, that gives me shivers. Um, but my first reaction this year was good for them. They're, they're still enforcing the face covering. And, and of course, um, my second reaction was, well, maybe we can do a little better on delivery. But um, yeah, nothing but pride for our ski areas. I have to say I was very impressed as I went from ski area to ski area. I, I can count on one hand the number of times I saw a ski area employee not wearing a mask. They, they seem to have set that expectation very high and very early. 
And I don't know what consequences they put in place for not following that, but I can tell you everyone was, was following it. Same, same. And, you know, I just, um, well, I was telling you, I skied copper, um, last week I skied Beaver Creek the week before absolutely same. And I was watching. In fact, I was embarrassed because sometimes I'd get down the lift line and mine was down. I'm like, oh yeah, I got to put that up. <laughs> um, but they were spot on. Everybody had their masks on. Yeah. And, and I have to say, you know, again, I'm in the Northeast and, and it's maybe just a little uh, more ingrained into us here because they, there were mask mandates in every state, but I really didn't see any issues with skiers wearing masks. And most of the time, if they weren't, it seemed like they just forgot. They were caught up. They were talking to their buddies. They were in line, whatever. I, I didn't see any any scuffles or fights or 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 attitude really about it at all. You know, skiing across the states that I did, which again are in the Northeast and is a little different than the culture out west. I think. Right. Um, that's that's my experience. Also, there was some in the in the beginning, and and um, there was strong leadership uh, from those ski areas, and just went out and supported their staff and said, if you want to be here, you have to wear a mask. Um, and it may not have been the popular thing to say with their guests, uh, but that's what they did. And again, just complete pride. Um, this if this is this was the year you had to stand behind your your staff members a hundred percent because it it was rough. So looking at operations overall, and this goes way beyond face masks, but many of the general managers that I've spoken with on the podcast have said, look, you know, COVID was, was kind of a pain and, and it, it was expensive and, um, you know, it, li- it limited a lot of what we could do. However, it was a really good reset. And there's a lot of these operational changes that we want to keep around. You know, I, th- I think this was a very rapid move to e-commerce, for example. Um, I think you saw base lodges used in a little, I don't know, more friendly way as far as, as actually making them usable um, and, and, you know, constricting their use to things that, that were maybe a little more essential. Uh, from your point of view, Kelly, what are some of the COVID operating trends that you think will become fixtures of lift serve skiing in the years ahead? Yeah, there's so many and, and they're starting to come out on d- different podcasts and, and, and webinars. Um, and it's so interesting to listen to. I mean, just the, the base lodge trend that you talked about, what I'm hearing is that, um, Ski area operators are thinking about their base lodges in different ways, um, how people want to be able to sit down and enjoy a meal, expanding restaurants. How do you configure the seats in a restaurant? Um, does everybody have to put on their boots in a, in a base lodge? I think there'll be some some movement there. Jumping back to that workforce we were just talking about, um, I think that the ski industry can benefit um, its worth workforce with more flexibility. There are some ski area positions that can work remotely part of the time. Uh, Some ski areas uh, offered paid sick leave to seasonal staff members, and um, that was a really good benefit. And they feel like it kept um, virus spread down. And let's face it, the flu gets us all every year. And when you have a staff member out, especially on an important day, um, that's not a good thing. So I'm hoping that there'll be some workforce shifts. Um, technology is a big one, uh, especially in the area of advanced purchases uh, to decrease or eliminate lines. Uh, I think ski areas will add more technology-based jobs. Um, and I think that the people that hold these positions will have a seat at the planning table, which really excites me. Um, so this is good for the workforce. And it's also 
really good for the guest experience for ski areas to up their technology game. Um, capacity limits to improve the guest experience. I, I think we'll see some trends there. And, and I don't you know, mean simply, let's put a cap on those peak days. I see and hear ski areas um, that this year formed um, their days into sessions. So for instance, at Blue Mountain, instead of, you know, they had four sessions. So on their busiest day, let's say, let's say on your busiest day, you do a thousand skiers. Um, instead of doing a thousand skiers, all four sessions, they would do a smaller amount at each session. So it was easier on the staff. It was better experience for the guests. And they still were able to get a good number of people to, um, to get those reservations. Uh, I think improved outdoor amenities we all learned that we can spend more time outdoors and people loved the outdoor seating and tents and food trucks. So I think some of that will continue. And most importantly, more collaboration. Um, we're already talking about how the collaboration um, that was so successful this year can be extended for other areas of focus like safety, sustainability, um, and diversity and inclusion. Yeah, that, that was the expanded use of the outdoor spaces and the food trucks and the, you know, picnic tables and the heat heat lamps. So that was my favorite. It was it was really, you know, we're all outside, we're dressed for it. And especially on a sunny day, it really makes it a more complete experience when you can just spread out and, and it really expands that seating capacity. So I really enjoyed that part of it. And, and most of the operators I spoke with about that said they intend to continue and, in fact, expand those areas in future years. Um, so, you know, you did it. Kelly and, and the industry did it and they learned a lot. I don't think anyone's saying this was easy, however. And while most ski areas don't release their finances publicly, we did see a pretty big loss from Vail Resorts in its latest quarterly earnings report. Now, they didn't lose quite as much as, as they thought they would. Um, but as you speak to your members, are most of them losing money this season or are they finding a way to at least break even? What's the picture look like? Well, it varies by region. It varies by size of ski area and the proximity um, uh, to the drive market. So our annual reports uh, that the ski areas fill out are not completed yet, but I would expect to see the strongest results in the Southeast, the Mid-Atlantic, um, and the Midwest. I believe that the drive to market uh, skiers will perform better than destination. And I think some of the hardest hit will be those skiers that depend on international and Canadian visits. Canadian visits, uh, you know, think Aspen, J Peak. Um, so, you know, it, it it's hard to, I, I can't tell you because I just don't have those results in yet, but uh, that's what I'm hearing when I talk to, to the, um, to the GMs of these ski areas. So whatever those results turn out to be, Kelly, it seems as though most of the ski areas have gotten through the season and will survive. At least there's, there's no outward indications that they won't at this point. And they can do this once, uh, but how imperative is it that we get back as close back to normal next season as possible so that these ski areas can look to thrive into the future, especially these ones like JP, like Aspen that you're talking about that just had, you know, a lot of factors working against them that were way beyond their control. Yeah. Um, you know, every ski season throws a fair amount of challenges and <laughs> it's always important, you know, to learn what you can and, and get right back on that bull. And this year is no different. Um, we need to get back uh, to some of the bigger challenges that we've been talking about today. 
uh, we need to, to work on our master plans, to continue to improve the guest experience. And in, again, talking to skiers, they're already planning for next season. So uh, I, this is a no-brainer as far as I'm concerned. I don't know what normal will look like, but they're, they're charging ahead. So the federal government and, and to some extent in some areas, local governments offered many rounds of stimulus. Uh, how were you able to take, help ski areas take advantage of this aid? Um, so, <laughs> this, this was a big part um, of what we did. And um, I guess I would, I would put it in, in two different categories. One would be um, the U.S. Forest Service. We have 122 ski areas that are on U.S. Forest Service um, lands. And Geraldine Link, she's uh, NSAA's Director of Public Policy, she started um, before the skiers were even shut down, uh, working on deferring fees. Um, fees are due to the Forest Service in the spring, and we knew that this was going to be a difficult time for the ski areas. And what um, Geraldine was able to do was get those um, fee payments deferred until the fall, giving skiers several months to to pay those bills uh, during a time when when it was tough, when a lot of them were shut down. On the PPP loan, I would I would say that was the other big category um, that we focused on. We had Dave Bird. Um, he's our director of regulatory affairs, and he focused on the PPP loans. And he has this uncanny ability to consume tons of information quickly. Um, and he helped the ski areas understand the in- in- intricacies of the CARE Act. Um, he shared important information with all the ski areas. There were webinars, you know, he spent hundreds of hours one-on-one with ski areas, walking them through the application process and encouraging them to apply. I mean, he's the type of guy that when he reads something in something like a CARES Act, which is you know like a hundred pages long, he's writing down which ski areas he has to call and, and this applies to him, but not to them. Um, and Dave was not shy. He asked for improvements um, that would benefit seasonal employees, um, seasonal employers like the ski industry. So for example, in the first round of PPP loans, Dave and um, many of our state associations, they were able to push Congress and the SBA to understand that as written, the loan forgiveness calculation, it actually discriminated against seasonal employers. And, um, and through their lobbying, improvements were made and that allowed ski areas to qualify for greater loan forgiveness. And in some cases, some of our ski areas, they um, were able to achieve 100% loan forgiveness. So that's just one example of just all summer long working on this and, and trying to get some um, some money into the ski, ski areas um, hands. So um, I, I, I think that what Dave and Geraldine were able to accomplish were, were huge wins for the ski industry. Now, well, one way or another, most ski areas figured out a way to open. And here in the Northeast, we only had two that did not. Uh, larger ski areas operated last year. And one was Ski Blanford, which its owners shut down permanently shortly after COVID came out. Uh, and the other was Tenny, which has sort of been in a tenuous situation for decades. Um, as you look across the nation, how many ski areas sat out this season? You had 400 or you documented 470 operating last year. So obviously you're counting ones that aren't members of the NSA necessarily. Uh, but do you have an estimate for this year? Yeah, um, it's something that we do count every year. Um, and 
our number for this year is 461 ski areas operated at good. some point in time. Yeah. And 10 of um, 10 we were able to track were actually shut down and closed due to COVID. So I expect them to rebound next year. Um, and it's been hovering around 470 skiers for the last 10 years. Yeah, three of those smaller ones were here in New York State, Northampton, Valbiales, and Villa Roma. Th those are all one chairlift or one T-bar operations. I is that mostly the blueprint that you were seeing, these sorts of smaller community ski areas uh, that, that are, you know, Villa Roma, for example, is part of a resort. So it, it, it's part of a larger operation. They just said, you know what, we're just going to not run the ski hill this year. So was it mostly these type of smaller ski areas? Yeah, you're absolutely right. There were a few in California, Idaho, Pennsylvania, um, Wisconsin, but um, it, it was it was the local ones. So the ones that were open, uh, they were facing capacity restrictions, but wow, they seemed busy. And and I, I don't know how much of that was due to social distancing guidelines in chairlifts that that in most cases reduced loading capacity on those lifts. But, you know, it, it seemed like a lot of other things were closed, restaurants, movie theaters, and skiing was one of the only things to do. So it, the perception when you're, when you're at a ski area is that it was busier than ever. So help us break through that noise a little bit. Were ski areas getting more people or, or were we just perceiving that because of these longer lift lines and some of these other factors? You know, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, in the Midwest, the Mid-Atlantic, uh, the South, that Southeast, there are skiers that are, I believe will report numbers greater than last year. So they were busier. But some of this um, growth was due to breaking into the sessions, like I mentioned with Blue Mountain, or because if folks couldn't get into a day session, they were going to night skiing. So across the country, we saw a surge in night skiing. And we saw a surge in people like the, the nine o'clock skier. Um, people were showing up what, at one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock. Uh, so by spreading the guests out over a larger span of time, you're able to accommodate, you know, larger numbers or at least similar numbers. Um, but as for the lift lines, um, we knew going into the season that this would be a problem, um, but we didn't know to what degree. And, and you know, I, I really wanted to push with the regulators, <laughs> the math on the lift lines, but it was just too much for, for them really to, to comprehend it. Just, it's hard until you see it. So based on the number of skiers I've talked to lift capacity basically was cut in half this year. So let's say you have a quad to your summit and you're allowing guests to self group, um, that cut capacity in half. So your mm. quad is now performing like a double, right. uh, your six pack is now performing like a triple. So 50% capacity means that lift lines expand. And you know, if you have a, a mechanical and your lift is down for three minutes, the line gets bigger. Uh, or if somebody falls at the unload, then you have to help them up. The line gets bigger. So, so those situations that would always for, cause the line to back up, just think of that, you know, the multiply it out. Um, and I, that's what we're seeing. Then of course there were those, you know, powder days and everybody shows up or it's wind. So you shut down two lifts and now everybody else is on the other three. So all of those things that we normally deal with as ski area operators were compounded this year. Um, 
and it's unfortunate. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, a few few skier operators got really smart, and they would send drones up to take like photos of their of their lines, uh, which I thought was smart because when you saw the overhead, you could see that oh yeah, the the skis allow for um, the distancing and the ghost lanes that a lot of skiers put into their queues also offered that side to side physical distancing. Um, and at the end of the day, there wasn't virus spread. So um, as, as alarming as some of those photos looked uh, at the end of the day, back to science, um, it worked. Yeah, Sugarbush did a really nice spread uh, from overhead. Um, so, you know, one of the things I think that that drove this perception of more skiers, aside from just the optics of the long lift lines, uh, was that by all accounts, this was a very strong off-season for season pass sales. Uh, and, and I think there was a combination of factors behind that, right? So a lot of people, you know, I, I live, for example, in New York City, a lot of people were leaving and going to find country homes. Um, and and you have more people working from home, meaning they could maybe sneak out for an hour or two during the day. Uh, not a lot of skiers, again, release their pass numbers publicly. Uh, Vale is one that does, and, and they showed a pretty good increase, although that was offset somewhat by the by the rebates they gave for the shortened season. However, from from your chair and seeing probably more numbers than most of us do, uh, what's your perception on the strength of season pass sales this year? Right. Well, uh, just like um, the other numbers, we don't have the results yet. Um, but I can tell you that season's pass sales, they've been trending upwards since 2013. And um, this past year, they accounted for 45 and a half percent of all skier visits. So last year was the first year that visits attributed to seasons past use surpassed daily lift ticket use. So I, I think that tells you something about what's going on in the U.S. with, se- with seasons passes. Um, knowing this and from what I hear, I believe we will record another year of growth, growth when it comes to past sales. Um, the, the growth is strongest at our largest ski areas. Um, and in the Northeast, the Rockies, and the Pacific Southwest, all which kind of makes sense when you when you look at some of the larger multi-resort passes that are available out there. We are seeing a lot of new pass holders, Kelly, and, and I think Vail in particular is really trying to get people to move into passes um, with their uh, huge price discounts that they just announced and the high day ticket prices they've been known for for a while. But um, do, you, do you think that a lot of these new skiers who maybe tried it because they couldn't do things like go out to eat or go to the movies. Do you think that we'll see them stick around in future seasons? Are you seeing any, anything to suggest that? Um, well, again, if, if you look back at um, our historical data, um, about 65% of our pass holders re- renew. So even before the pandemic there, there was some, some work to be done in that area. I do think that skiers are are becoming more savvy in terms of building that relationship with their their seasons pass holders. So I I do think that if they use technology and data and they communicate with the guest, if they bring their the, you know their authentic selves to to the um, when they're communicating with them, there's a chance to improve these conversion rates. But it's a heavy lift. Um, and I think the most successful skiers will figure out uh, how to do this. One of the things that I think will really help them, Kelly, is is I spent a lot of the last off season tracking the evolution in season passes, and we saw them evolve 
toward what I would call a, a much more customer-friendly suite of policies and options. So first of all, a, most of the large scarias got rid of their very firm no refunds policy, at least for this season. And you've seen many of the larger operators carry those same sort of pass protections and deferral options over into the 21 to 22 ski season. Um, do you think these refund and deferral policies are here to stay? Yes, I, I hope so. Um, I believe some will stay and, and will continue to trend in that direction. It makes sense to follow other hospitality and travel industry policies because that is what our guests are familiar with and they expect. You know, I think of, you know, airlines. It may take some time for the industry to get there, but the pandemic forced some policies that should be carefully considered for the future. And what I'm hearing is um, at least some of, of the ski areas are considering um, extending those. And we've also seen some other consumer-friendly policies, uh, a lot more payment plans. Um, those seem to be sticking around. I've seen a lot more renewal discounts this year. Uh, the early bird deadlines seem to be extending farther and farther into the spring and summer. Um, some of this was in reaction to COVID, but it seems like some of it had organically already been happening. Uh, how, how much pressure are ski areas feeling from one another to make their pass offerings more dynamic, more flexible, more consumer friendly? <laughs> well, peer pressure is a real thing in the ski industry. We we all really watch what each other is doing closely. Um, there is a, That's especially true like in your region. Um, Everybody has spreadsheets just like yours. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, if your neighbor extends their deadline, your pass holders are going to ask you why you aren't extending yours. So you have to have answers. Um, but many of these pass adjustments, um, you know, th they they improve the, the guest experience. So I think um, we don't have to be cookie cutter in our in our approach. Unique brands are the strength of our industry and ski areas. Um, need to stay true to their brand and share their story with their guests. Um, and when they, when they kind of develop that relationship with their guests, they're going to have flexibility, but overall guests are going to be asking for this. They, they got a taste of it during COVID and, and I think the ski industry is going to have to respond. So just zooming out of the past landscape a little more, the Epic and Icon passes seem to be here to stay. And, and we've seen a really rapid evolution in the past landscape overall. Uh, do you think these mega passes are good for skiing? I actually do. Um, our data at NSA shows that multi-resort passes, um, they dr they're driving sales at independent ski areas, meaning that we haven't, since the multi-resort passes have um, expanded and become more popular, we have not seen a decline in uh, season's pass sales at independent ski areas. Hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, they're reporting strong pass sales also. So um, I think the season's pass, the multi-resort um, pass is great because it gives the customer the best value, flexibility. Um, there's lots of membership perks like discounts for your buddies. Um, and, you know, what we saw this year was that when caps are in place, sometimes season's pass holders um, got to get in uh, before ticket holders. So I think for this, uh, you know, for the sav for the savvy you know ski pass ski area a pass holder is that customer you can develop a relationship and uh they're a really good investment in your future um rob cats and and vale resorts they talk about this a lot um and um i believe in it 
Yeah, that that early access is is so awesome. The, you know, my local mountain, Mountain Creek, the the pass is really cheap. It was two hundred and thirty dollars last year, and the place has a reputation because it's forty five miles from New York City as being just a circus, and it's it's so busy, and, and it you know it doesn't necessarily because of its location get the most skilled skiers. Right, it's a lot of novices. However, they open the lifts at eight a.m. to season pass holders, and, and that is so huge for me because I go out there, I, I ski for three hours, and I'm gone before the crowds show up. Um, so, so that sort of thinking is going to build loyalty for the folks who, who otherwise might be scared away from some of these areas. Exactly. Um, so, you know, I've, I've also seen, I've seen some really creative thinking come out of the local, the smaller ski areas, the regional ski areas. It, from, from my point of view, seems to be a response to the mega passes. So you take one example that I really like, which is the Berkshire Summit Pass. Um, so that gives you unlimited access to Berkshire East, Catamount, and Bosquet, three ski areas in Massachusetts. Um, all pretty good size. Bosquet is a little smaller, but it's a it's a little community area. Um, unlimited access to all those for $499. They have midweek options. They have nights-only options. It's also in Indie Pass Mountain, so you can add an Indie Pass on, which gives you two days to 60-some additional mountains for last, last year was 129. Who knows what it'll be this year? Probably not that much more than that. Um, so... So you're seeing some really creative responses. Uh, on the other hand, the Epic and Icon passes are cheaper than many mountain single mountain pass, especially after uh, Vail dropped the prices by 20%. Um, overall, do you think these big passes like Epic and Icon are good for the independent operators who aren't affiliated with their passes, or are they presenting an existential challenge for some of these smaller operators who are going to have a really hard time matching those prices in the long term, especially with Vail's recent drops? Yeah, I just I, I love the creativity. I mean, it just shows that um, in a competitive landscape, everybody ups their games. When I think when it when it comes to selecting a pass, I mean, you just gave a perfect example of Mountain Creek and and your relationship with Mountain Creek. It's it's a it's a three hour relationship <laughs> in the morning and it works for you. So I, I really think that it, when it comes to selecting a pass, a lot of it comes down to where you're located, um, the ski areas you have access to and the ski areas you enjoy skiing at for one reason or, or another. It could be simply that your kid likes the program there. Um, I'm in as a mom. So the majority of guests, um, they're not going to give up their favorite local ski area for a lower priced multi-resort pass. Some will, but my experience is, is that the, but that is the minority, not the majority. Um, it isn't easy for ski areas to compete with multi-resort passes, but it, it it's actually that competition that drives stronger capital investment. It drives you to uh, come up with creative programs, events, um, to really focus on the guest experience. Uh, you, you just really have to be on your game. And as I mentioned before, if you run a good operation and stay true to your brand, you have an advantage because there are a lot of customers who out who are out there and they want to be part of something a bit smaller um, where they're part of the community. Um, you know, my dad, I grew up skiing at Pat's Peak. My dad, it was important to him that he could drop me off and talk to the parking attendants and tell him he'd be back at three to pick me up. <laughs> and then he would say, you know, that was important to him. He felt part of that community. They know they knew me, they knew him. Um, and I think that the Indie Pass model is especially interesting because it gives the pass holder so much flexibility, but still honors the discovery of, um, you know, 
discovering all those independent ski areas. So uh, I, I like what's going on out there. I think that's the strength of some of these independent ski areas. And I don't think that the epics and the icons are going to be a problem as long as um, the smaller ski areas, you know, keep upping their game, which they are. Yeah, it's true. I really like the Indy Pass model as well. If you if you take a mountain like Magic Mountain, that's only a four day a week operation, right? So so if you want to ski Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and you're a Magic Season Pass holder, well, you can add on that Indy Pass. And presto, you have places to ski Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Um, and if you want to take a trip out west, you have that as well. The, the ones that are, I I worry about are the ski areas that you know the pass is still hovering around a thousand dollars. They don't provide access anywhere out west. So so if you're skiers do want to take a trip out west and they have to you know worry about the the ticket price out there or buy an epic and icon in relation to that and and that's where that's where i'm really curious to see this evolution and and how they respond long term yeah i'm I'm interested to see that too and and um and hopefully they're they're gathering around the table and, and they're talking about their price point and they're comparing it and um, they're, if they want to keep their price point around $1,000, they're building value for that customer. Um, you don't always have to discount, discount, discount. There's, yeah. there's so many ways to, to build value. No, it's, a, it's an interesting market to watch, and, and I'll keep watching you very closely. So, all right, well, let's shift to diversity here. Um, last summer, following the murder of George Floyd, uh, the CEOs of both Vail and Altera released statements admitting that they had not done enough to promote diversity in skiing, both in terms of who's skiing, the people on slopes, and who's working in skiing and running those resorts. Uh, what was your reaction to those statements, Kelly? Yeah, I, I'm totally encouraged by those statements. Um, I'm also a little overwhelmed by the work that needs to be done to achieve a more inclusive workforce uh, and, and mountain clientele. Uh, this is a really long and complex journey. Um, Rusty and, and Rob know that more than anyone. Um, I'm so happy to see follow through on those statements. For instance, um, Vail, uh, they added be inclusive to their core values and uh, they're offering training to their staff. I, I think training for the staff is one of the number one things we should all be doing uh, right now. Um, you know, if for, for, for your listeners who like Ski Industry Podcasts, I'd encourage them to listen to Vale's um, Epic by Nature series. There was, um, there was a podcast in February where Rob uh, talked to some of his staff members about their experiences being people of color, especially in the ski industry. And I, um, I just thought it was extremely interesting. And um, it was very brave of those staff members to share their stories. Um, very compelling. Um, yeah, but I, I'm, I'm really encouraged. And what is the NSAA doing to promote diversity in skiing? Well, um, if I'm completely honest and in no way do I want to diminish the good work that some of our skiers have done, um, because they've really done a lot to welcome historically, um, underrepresented people, um, in our mountains and in our workplaces, but overall, you know, our industry has a long way to go. Um, and, and admitting that is a very important first step. So at NSAA, um, we've been working on this. Uh, it, it's, it's another area of pride um, for the last year. And um, we, we kind of had to, 
had to figure it out and, and put things in buckets to kind of chart our path. And, and so we have three pillars in the first one. And again, I believe this is the most important that is internal growth. And, and we believe that we have to get our own house in order. Um, so we started in the summer by um, working with Laura Moriarty and she took us through um, a training program called Awaken. Uh, it, it's, it's unconscious bias training. There was not a person out of the 13 of us who didn't believe it was worthwhile. We all discovered biases. Um, we then went to our board of directors and we started working on our bylaws and uh, we voted through amendments that will allow for a more diverse um, board of directors. And we also have a small group on our, on our NSA team um, that we talk about um, diversity and inclusion all the time, uh, but we have a formal meeting every other week and then we have discussion at our staff meetings. And, and I can't tell you how important that is, is just talking about these issues because it's super complex and people have different feelings. People are at different um, points in this journey. And if you don't talk about it and get comfortable with it, you're not going to move forward. Our second pillar um, is we decided let's do what we do best. And that's education and resources to our membership. So, you know, we're committed to providing DEI education and resources to our members. Um, one of the best things we did is we partnered uh, with Damaris Patterson Price. She's um, she has a company called Working River Leadership Consulting. And what we said, we have a growth committee and we're focused on growing the sport. And uh, we've talked about diversity in the past. So we said, well, what if we could talk with the growth committee and give them some of the tools so they could go out and talk to their peers in the industry? Um, so we hired uh, Damaris and she has helped the growth committee. We started last fall and... Um, we're continuing uh, those coaching sessions. You know, we had one this morning, actually. And uh, it has just been so enlightening. And we're starting to understand um, not only personally, and you have to get, you have to get, you have to understand personally where you are, um, our privileges, but that of our ski industry. And uh, we've even talked to uh, marketing uh, folks who gave us tips on how to market to people of color. So that's been um, really great. And then our third pillar is leadership. And we basically want to lead by example. We want to use our voice to call for a more inclusive, be um, to call for more inclusive behavior. We want to applaud those who are, who are making progress. Um, so I was lucky enough to, um, be asked to join a group of ski industry professionals, um, PSIA, NSP, SIA, OIA, Share Winter. And um, we had a inclusion coach work with us for six months. Um, and it was an absolutely enlightening experience for me. I, I think it was probably, um, it, it, it has been the most important thing I have done um, in my life um, to really grow as a person and understand, um, you know, where I live, the people around me and, um, my privilege and how I want to move forward as a human being. 
do you think there's an opportunity here, Kelly, uh, to draw from the lessons that you learned from designing and implementing SKU well, be well? Because it's, you know, essentially what you were doing there is you had a very large problem and you worked collaboratively to come up with some common standards or, or, uh, or, or methods and, and then helped some of the other, some of your members who may not have had the resources to, to understand those and put this in place. Um, and not, not comparing those one-to-one, but, but I'm saying, you know, in the way that you developed that common material and, 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 and shared those resources, is there an opportunity to, to do the same sort of thing with diversity? Because if you, if you look at a lot of your members, they're in communities that may not be diverse. They don't necessarily have marketing outside of those areas. They might not even understand that there is a problem, let alone how to solve it. Is there an opportunity here to take some of these lessons you learned from, from this other program and, and, and maybe do something similar with diversity? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that, you know, NSAA will, um, we have to, it, it will become one of our primary, it is one of our primary areas of focus. Um, we've started, you know, getting, when I talk about getting your own house in order and that internal growth, what we really felt was that we needed to understand what was going on in our workforce. So we've just um, finished up a DEI um, workforce, um, an employee engagement survey. So we're going to be reporting on the results of that survey and that will be a benchmark for us so we can move forward. But we have to expand, uh, you know, we're looking at education for frontline staff members. We're looking at marketing, um, ideas and solutions. Uh, and that's what some of the work that we did with the growth committee, uh, but we have to expand it to our larger membership. So aside from raising awareness, I'm just curious about your, your point of view on pipeline programs, which I've seen work pretty well in the entertainment industry. So um, in that industry, they would just look for underrepresented talent who don't have necessarily the connections, for example, to understand how to get into something like TV production. Right, which can be all kinds of things. It's it's directing, it's editing, it's lighting, it's working on set. There's there's a million things you could do to to be part of that industry, and and they'll they'll sort of find entry level jobs f- for folks who are interested in this but don't know how to break in, and they'll give them mentors and 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 just kind of help them step into their first jobs. And eventually, the hope is they become the leaders of the future. So there's a couple ways this could work in skiing. One is identify underrepresented talent that would be interested in a ski career and, and just help them get that first foot in the door, whether it's bumping lifts, working the cafeteria, you know, whatever, and work your way up. And the other is, is what, uh, Sean Mellier out here in New Jersey is doing right down the road from mountain Creek at the national winter activity center, which is, is bringing groups of children in from these schools in the cities all around New Jersey and New York and giving them the gear and the clothes and the food and the snacks and the access to the lifts and the lessons in skiing and snowboarding to help them uh, understand that this is something they can do to make them not to make them feel like insiders, not outsiders. So, just curious about your thoughts on those sorts of programs as long-term ways to change both who is skiing and who is running skiing. Yeah, I love that comparison. Um, so, there are a lot of amazing programs like Sean's um, to get underrepresented people on snow, especially youth. Um, there's programs like 
yes and share winter sos chill so there's so many um they are vitally important and we should and along with the kids we should be thinking about adults and how we can welcome them to our slopes um you know you have to um one of the things that one of the marketeers who who talked to us um when we were trying to figure out ways to market to people of color they recommended that we do journey mapping so let's say that you um envision your ski area for a single black dad and you just start from your website to apre ski and go through the journey that that dad and child would experience and will that dad feel welcome how will that child to feel if they're with a white instructor um you know you can do the same thing for a gay snowboarder or an adaptive skier there's so much work to be done um that it's like you said we need to go back and we need to give our ski areas the tools they so they can start this journey um but i really do believe that it starts right at the at their workforce and and yes absolutely frontline staff let's get them in there but also if you have a position that's open maybe it's at a managerial level or director level or it's your cfo um you have to start having policies in place that you are going to recruit and you're going to make an effort to recruit people that have traditionally been underrepresented in your hiring pool um and that's especially more doable when you have positions that you're hiring for that have a long lead time like a CFO um just because a person um has never applied for your position before doesn't mean that they don't want to it's just maybe that they weren't aware that it was um open an open position so the diversity issue is it's it's pretty plain to anyone who goes skiing that it's an overwhelmingly white sport that has a lot of room to grow in that area uh, but i think you know those of us who are part of the community really have to be honest with ourselves that the skiing is exclusionary in other ways as well um i i think the sort of casual labeling of people as jerry's cuz they don't know all of the etiquette necessarily or or maybe aren't the best skier or 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 whatever i think that also turns people away um you know i i know you have some thoughts on that as well how important is it to evolve that mentality that clubbiness if we want to grow the sport and just make more people feel welcome period yeah most skiers and riders they don't even realize what they're doing when they post a a video to social media or comment or or add a laugh emoji to you know a jerry of the day post um it's all it's all in good fun but at the end of the day you may be making fun of somebody and um you know I, i've always wanted to learn to surf and if i were to start exploring uh that community and i saw this kind of jerry of the day type um posts i don't know if i would feel comfortable i i might feel that somebody was going to take a video of me and post it and make fun of what i was wearing or you know i'm definitely going to look out of place when i when i take my first lesson um but these are all the details that you know they've positioned us as a club and maybe to some people it looks like we're a private club 
So um, when I say that our third pillar is leadership, leaders in our industry will call for more inclusive behavior um, and will stop supporting actions that are exclusive. I mean, for Skiria operators that may be listening, it, it may be this is a great conversation to start with. Uh, sit down with your marketing department and see how they feel about this, uh, what they support and what they don't support. Uh, it all, everybody and anybody can do something today. Um, it's just, it's just being willing and it's reaching out to people at your ski areas. There, there are people at your ski area who want to talk about this, who want to um, take a stand and run this for you. It doesn't have to be one more thing on your plate. Share this with your ski area and you're going to find people who are, who are willing to to have these conversations and move the, the DEI um, um, journey forward. You know, I'm, I'm curious just to go back to passes for a moment, how you think that that the, the decline in season pass prices might kind of fit into this. So when you see Vail drop a season pass from almost $1,000 down to less than 800, and there's, there's many cheaper versions of that. And you contrast that to, you know, going back 20 years, uh, a, a season pass at one ski area, like uh, Squaw Valley or, or Vail was $1,500, right? Very expensive, very much a thing for locals, or, or maybe if you were lucky enough to own a condo. And Vail, by, by leading the way on prices, kind of democratized that and, and made the season pass uh, less elitist, right? It, it's, it's sort of opened up so anyone could be a season pass holder. And I, I kind of see some of the strong reaction that I see to Vail lowering their prices is sort of like, oh, you're letting more people in as, as, a, as a bad thing. And I understand nobody wants crowding on the slopes. Um, however, they are making this more accessible to more people. I'm just curious if you had any, have any thoughts on that um, in, in, in what that does when, when you suddenly can afford a season pass to sort of feel like an insider um, even if it's for mountains that you may not go to because you have a, an epic local pass, you, that means you have a season pass to Breckenridge, you might not get anywhere near there, but, but you have it and it kind of makes you feel like you're part of it. Yeah. And it, and it's so smart. Um, you know, the more people that they can get on the passes, the more they can build those one-on-one -on -one relationships. You know, my, my grocery store does it. Um, I'm a member. Yeah. They send me stuff. Makes me feel good. Um, and my next concern is, is not just for Vail Resorts, it's for, it's for the entire ski industry. I am worried about the casual skier, even at, at those prices and, and their fantastic prices. Um, you know, the casual skier who's going to ski two or three times, which is so important to our ski industry that, that we keep these folks engaged, that they're not going to probably buy that pass. They may, they may. Um, but... I'm worried about them and I'm especially worried about those casual skiers who fall in the um, under 24 year olds because we're seeing a, 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 a decline in those areas. And uh, one skier operator shared with me that um, they work in the parking lot. So, you know, we, we saw a lot of GMs and whatnot out mm -hmm. on mass patrol and working in parking lots, just helping out this year. And what they were seeing at the parking lots is when they had to cut off um, cars because they were full um, which would probably be, I, I would guess around 10 or 11, you know, in the morning versus the, the early birds who know to get there, you know, right at 8 AM. Right. Um, it was more, uh, people of color, the casual mm. skiers, the people who 
were not in the club and knew exactly what to do. Um, And those are the folks that um, I want to find better ways to engage with. And and I know that the ski areas um, join me in those concerns. It's not, it's not easy to figure out, but um, it is something that we have to focus on. All right, Kelly. Well, uh, with that, I will let you go. I cannot thank you enough for your time today and for bearing with my technical difficulties, Uh, but we got through it. So thank you very much for your time. This was great insight and congratulations to you on everything you've done this season. The feedback that I've gotten about the NSAA from all the scary operators I've talked to and, and just the feedback I've seen online is that you just absolutely killed it. So congratulations to you and your team for leading the way through this very challenging time. Oh, you're so welcome. And congratulations to you for for telling the important stories of our industry um, that we're all anxious to hear. Well, thank you. Couldn't do it without you. So uh, I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. That's Kelly Pollack, president and CEO of the National Skier Association. Thank you so much for that, Kelly. And thank you for the ski season. We could not have done it without you. I mean that sincerely. Skiing means a lot to me, and if you're listening to this podcast, it means a lot to you too. And you owe Kelly and the NSAA a huge thanks for what they just accomplished. Thank you all for listening. If you also like reading, you ought to subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. You can also follow the storm on Twitter at Storm Ski Journal. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.